Make me a grave where'er you will, in a lowly plain or a lofty hill. Make it among earth's humblest graves, but not in a land where men are slaves. I could not rest if around my grave I heard the steps of a trembling slave. His shadow above my silent tomb would make it a place of fearful gloom. I could not rest if I heard the tread of a coffle gang to the shambles led, and the mother's shriek of wild despair rise like a curse on the trembling air. I could not sleep if I saw the lash drinking her blood at each fearful gash, and I saw her babes torn from her breast like trembling doves from their parent nest. I'd shudder and start if I heard the bay of bloodhounds seizing their human prey, and I heard the captive plead in vain as they bound afresh his galling chain. If I saw young girls from their mother's arms bartered and sold for their youthful charms, my eye would flash with a mournful flame, my death-pale cheek grow red with shame. I would sleep, dear friends, where bloated might can rob no man of his dearest right. My rest shall be calm in any grave where none can call his brother a slave. I ask no monument, proud and high, to arrest the gaze of the passers-by. All that my yearning spirit craves is bury me not in a land of slaves. Hello, and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And you have just heard, right there in the pre-intro, Bury Me in a Free Land by the poet, novelist, and activist, Francis E.W. Harper, who was one of the first African-American writers published in the United States. And um, that is the author that we are going to be looking at this week. In her day, Harper was a really popular speaker, and I just felt like her poetry needed to be performed to really sort of, you know, get us into the right headspace. Um, so, yeah, that's why I didn't read it, because I do a shit job at it, let's be honest. And, um, yeah, <laughs> no, you we got wouldn't. an actress. Did a great job. Thank you so much, Stacy. <laughs> I hope this is, like, the future of... I, I want more, like, actresses. Yes. We're going to do more <laughs> of that. <laughs> Just cut us right out. Yeah, I just, I want someone to perform me. Oh, yes. Okay, so we're now casting for the role of Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so um, we've got a lot of show to cover today. So let's go ahead and jump right in to Frances Ellen Watkins. Now, this gal was born in 1825 and... um. I want to just sort of place her in our pantheon, in our binder full of women writers. So um, you guys can kind of see where she falls on the timeline. So Anne Bronte, she was born in 1820. Louisa okay. May Alcott, born in 1832. Okay. And everyone's favorite, Harriet Beecher Stowe, was born in 1811. That now, chronology is out of order. It is, but I just wanted to put Beecher at the end. Yeah, there. I know. Take a shot. Take a <laughs> shot. Down the bottom. 
Now, um, yeah, you're going to have to down a bottle because, uh, Hannah, would you like to join me at the sidebar for a Harriet Beecher Stowe moment, (laughs) if you will? Yeah, can I eat something first to line my stomach? (laughs) Yeah, you really should. Get some mashed potatoes in there. Um, Because Francis and Harriet uh, have a pretty solid connection. A little bit more solid than some of our previous connections, I will say. I'm excited. Yeah, no tin hat on this one. So not only was... Francis a huge fan of Uncle Tom's Cabin and Stowe's abolition work, but she even wrote Harriet a poem entitled To Mrs. Beecher Stowe. So um yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. that is Hannah. a strong connection. Pretty pretty strong. Hannah, would you like to read like a verse or two of this poem? I've pasted it into the notes. You just like pick one at random. I thank thee for thy pleading for the helpless of our race. Long as our hearts are beating in them, thou hast a place. I thank thee for thy pleading for the fettered and the dumb. The blessing of the perishing around thy path shall come. I thank thee for the kindly words that graced thy pen of fire and thrilled upon the living chords of many a heart's deep lyre. For the sisters of our race, thou'st nobly done thy part. Thou hast won thyself a place in every human heart. The halo that surrounds thy name hath reached from shore to shore, but thy best and brightest fame is the blessing of the poor. Nice. Thank you, Hannah. Very good job. That's a nice poem. You should include the whole thing. It is a very nice poem. I also like the uh, pen of fire line. Yeah, the pen of fire is pretty good. I'll be honest, at first I I forgot halfway through that she was writing it. I'm assuming it's meant sincerely. It is. I was like, is she shit talking? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, is this a sarcastic poem? It's like, yeah, thanks very much. But then I thought, oh, no, this seems pretty nice. Yeah, no, it's sincere. Uh, Later, we will get to a piece where Harper is shit talking someone. And it's um, it's pretty blatant. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She's she's pretty in your face. Okay, so let's um, cover a little bit of Harper's life story. She was born in Baltimore, and she was born to free African-American parents. So it's very important. She was never a slave. Her parents weren't slaves. Um, But yeah, she was always sort of um, running from possible enslavement due to uh, laws that were like sort of changing and moving around. So she had to move around to sort of escape uh, quite a bit. Her parents actually died when she was three years old, and she was raised by her aunt and uncle. Now, Hannah, just take a guess. What do you think that Harper's uncle did for a living? Did he build Crystal Palace like Francis Hodgson Burnett's dad? What a coincidence that would be. (laughs) No, (laughs) he did not. He did not. Was he a minister? He was a minister. Quite like maybe, you know, Jane Austen's dad or the Bronte's dad. Alcott's dad. Yeah. Gaskell's husband. Right. Yeah. (laughs) He was a minister. Um, He also ran a school called the Watkins Academy for Negro Youth, uh, which Francis attended. So uh, like in addition to, you know, learning her her womanly accomplishments like sewing and, you know, whatnot. She was also, um, you know, reading the classics. Yeah. She was getting like a school education. Frances was always a prolific reader and writer. Actually, when she was 14, she gained employment with a Quaker family as a seamstress or possibly a nursemaid. Seen this listed differently many times. Okay. Yeah. Um, And they actually allowed her to read anything that she wanted from their library. And I 
cannot confirm this 100%, but she seems to have been Team Austin. Why do you think that? Are there like whispers or do you just know that she read something? Um, or did she mention it? She... So there is a short story, which we will talk about a little bit later as well. It's called The Two Offers. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like if you read it, it has like, it has almost like a base that could be expanded into an Austin story, a la like okay. Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice, dealing with like women and their choices, their romantic choices or lack of, you know, options. Yeah. And, okay. And um, there is a character in there and the character uh, is named, I believe, Jeanette Alliston. And so a lot of people say that actually she's like making a reference uh, to Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was like, that's not a name in any of the books. <laughs> no. Connection went right like... over my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's not super strong, but I mean if you read like it, it, it does it does give you Austen vibes. So yeah. I could I could definitely see it. Um Frances herself actually started publishing really, really early. So she started publishing pieces in anti-slavery magazines when she was just 14 years old. And then she published her first book of poetry called Forest Leaves, also sometimes called Autumn Leaves, when she was just 20 years old. And up until recently, it was thought that Forest Leaves was lost to time. But more on this later. Thank you. Thank you for that spooky music. <laughs> it says it says insert ominous music here on the notes. So I just felt like we've got the actress. Let's get right? the film score provided by there. me. Her uh, second book, Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects. Not the best title, Francis. Come on. Should I like pen it? Pen of fire. Pen of fire. Pen of fire. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When I publish my like Francis Harper collected edition, it's going to be like, it's going to be called Pen of Fire. Mine's going to be called, I wasn't sure if she was shit talking. Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects was published in 1854 and it was hugely popular. It sold over 10,000 copies and it was reprinted many times. So that's, that's big. I would love to sell 10,000 copies now of like anything, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's a great number. Um, shortly after she started publishing um, some short stories, she had essays, then she had serialized novels, which really sort of rounded out her career. You may have heard of some of her works. Um, Iola Leroy, which is also sometimes called Shadows Uplifted, is very popular. There's also many sacrifice sketches of Southern life, which was uh, written pretty late in her career. Okay, do you think uh, true or false, has Hannah, Hannah has heard of these books, true or false? Um, you have definitely not heard of these books. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> I mean, no, never. I hadn't heard of uh, any of these books except for I- Iola Leroy. I heard of maybe five years ago. And it's such a shame because as we're kind of, you know, kind of get a little bit more into Francis had this huge career. I mean, just not only as a writer, but also as an American activist. And yeah. um, I no, nothing not a word There's in nothing. school yeah no not a word um harper was also a very well-known speaker and teacher in her day and honestly we could fill this entire episode just talking about her career as an activist because it spans over 50 years um so there's like the pre-civil war stuff and then there's the post-war and reconstruction like issues that she's tackling so you know pre-civil war obviously she's focusing a lot on like abolition and whatnot 
And then during Reconstruction and after Emancipation, she's focusing on equal rights. I'm going to just highlight a few moments um, that you guys may have heard of or that I just want to call attention to because I thought they were really interesting when I was researching Francis. So first up, 100 years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on an Alabama bus, Francis refused to move on a Philadelphia trolley in the colored section. And um, this incident served as a huge inspiration for not only her poem, Bury Me in a Free Land, which is the one that we heard the top of the show, but also for um, several of her speeches. It really, really affected her. Frances was also a traveling lecturer for the American Anti-Slavery Society. And Bury Me in a Free Land was definitely like one of the hits. So she'd go, she'd lecture, people would say... Give us Bury Me in a Free Land one more time. It's one of the favorites. It's her like her free bird. Um, And the money that she'd use for like all of those or that she'd raise for all of those like speeches and whatnot, she was funneling actually right back into the Underground Railroad. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's really good, which you can see like why she's a huge fan of Harriet Beecher Stowe. And yeah. Yeah, and then the success also, it becomes really important when you think about where the profit is going as well. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. like, it's not just like she's taking that and then like paying it forward, like paying it back in to support the stuff that she's, you know, like there's a purpose to it. There is. In 1860, Francis married a widower with three children and his name was Fenton Harper. They moved to Ohio bought a farm, had a daughter, and they lived this kind of pretty quiet, like sweet domestic life for about four years. You know, she was growing vegetables, like churning butter for the farmer's market. It's like really nice. Yeah. And it's kind of nice that like you get to this point in the bio. It hurts your hands though. It does. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Like, oh, that sounds nice. No, wait. Blisters. It's nice that she's like making us quiet living. She kind of has a break because I feel like when you're reading her bio, it's like it's going at such a like a pace, like she's doing so much. And then finally, you know, she gets married, she kind of settles down and has like a moment. Yeah. She's like with her family. And yeah, but it's all, of course, because she's like a woman writer on the show. It's like short lived. Right. There's got to be something tragic that happens. So Fenton dies in 1864 And even though Frances's money had been used to, you know, purchase the farm, I mean, she's a woman, she's a black woman, she has no rights to anything. So everything is taken away from her. Oh, my Um, God. It's really depressing. And actually, her speeches, she does reference this quite a bit. Um, She does say that she, like, they came in, took all of her furniture, took everything. They just left her with, like, a single mirror, hand mirror. That's it. That's all she had. And she's got these four kids. Now, her stepkids go live with various family members. So it's just her and her daughter. Okay. And she's like, okay, I got to like hit the road, right? And get back into it and start working again and start writing again. But um, this time it's like just after the Civil War has ended. So the Civil War ends in 1865. Um, Abolition is no longer really her cause. It's more equal rights and especially equal rights for women, black women, So, you know, this doesn't happen to any other woman. So this is all happening around the time of the Civil War. And it's just making me think of um, work as well and like the end Mm. of work and then the career choice that, um, you know, that girl, Christy. What was Christy? Yeah. (laughs) Christy, I'd forgotten the name. Yeah. So it's kind of like 
that. That's a great point because the thing is, um, after the Civil War, a lot of abolitionists sort of look for their next cause, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, the war's won, job done. Yes. Yeah. So that's all done. So now we need our next thing. And our next thing is going to be the right to vote for white women. Yeah. Specifically. Okay. Very yeah. specifically. Um, in fact, in 1866, Francis was invited to speak at the 11th annual Women's Rights Convention in New York, where she shared a platform with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Do those mean names mean anything to you? Okay. No, sorry. Very famous, like, American suffrage leaders. I mean, they might be really, I don't know. Sort of like to the equivalent of your, um, like, the Pankhurst. Okay. So if that makes sense. I have heard of them. Yeah. So <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, if you're yeah. American, you probably, you probably know who they are. Um, but I wasn't sure for our overseas listeners. Um, I bet so everyone else is was like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know them. Katie? You know them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know those guys. Um, so they invite Frances to come, you know, speak at the convention. She's a very popular speaker at the time. And um, she comes and she delivers a real, like, blistering speech entitled, We Are All Bound Up Together. And this is basically her just calling out hypocrisy and racism within the suffragette movement, basically. And it's particularly giving a side eye to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who's just right up there on stage with her. Oh, really? And that's the shit-talking speech? That is the shit-talking speech. So, uh, Joanna is a doctoral candidate in the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Originally from Austria, her dissertation project is titled Whatever Concerns Them as a Race Concerns Me, The Life and Activism of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. And our guest is going to tell us a little bit more about that speech. You know, I'm obviously white and from Austria. And so Mm -hmm. when I started, I, I started my studies at the University of Vienna. And I was mm-hmm. always really interested in African-American studies, like mm-hmm. even in high school, which is weird because obviously in Austria, you don't learn about African-American studies right. um, at all. Um, so at the University of Vienna, I studied African studies and American studies because to me, it was mm-hmm. like that was the closest I could somehow get. And then gotcha. I transferred to Rutgers University to finish my undergrad here. And at Rutgers, I was finally able to be in an African-American studies department, take classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like white Americans, you know, they would ask me like, what do you study? And I'm like African-American studies. And mm-hmm. then, you know, full pause, then they look, then, you know, you see them like computing in their head what I said. Mm-hmm. Some of them started laughing actually, because they thought I was joking Oh gosh! until I didn't laugh. And they were like, oh, I'm sorry, you're serious. And I was like, yeah. And, and then others Others were like, oh, interesting. So, so you want to, you want to um, live in Africa? <laughs> I was like, like I, to me, when all of that then started to happen, I was in my early twenties. I was like, yo, what kind of country is this? Like, I was just like, I, it makes no sense to me. So when you have like white Americans that clearly then don't even understand what African-American studies is or mm-hmm. what it does, you know, 
then I was like, oh, wow, like, this is actually, like, some real problematic stuff across the board, you know, yeah, if, if they associate that with, like, me wanting to live in Africa. I'm like, this doesn't even remotely make any sense to me. But for them, like, they that conclusion is, like, totally logical, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, African-American studies is for African-Americans, apparently. And like women's studies, that's for women, you know, like literature about and by women is for women and no one else. Exactly. 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 So I'm just like, I I was like, oh gosh, I mean, all you can do is just, you know, teach and just hope you reach, you know, some young mind and, you know. Right. Right. So now what was your dissertation about so um my dissertation um it's not done yet so basically Mm -hmm. my dissertation really focuses on um on harper um but more i would say it's like a blueprint in terms of it being um hopefully going to be a biography on francis harper oh awesome so yeah so it's basically um, in terms of the title, um, I, I titled it Whatever Concerns Them as a Race Concerns Me, The Life and Activism of Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. And so for the dissertation, I'm basically look, looking at her um, and her activism in the social reform movements of the 1800s. So I'm literally going like in a chronological way, looking at her in the anti-slavery movement, um, the women's rights movement, temperance movement. um, And um, at the same time, obviously, also looking at her literary productions, because I just Mm -hmm. want to make sure that I can present, uh, you know, a well-rounded perspective of her. Mm -hmm. Um, And for her, it's like her political persona and her literary persona are so intermarried you know, yeah. that like the interdisciplinary approach is crucial with African-American studies anyways. Um, but also like for this project, it's just really important um, for me to to show her in all her like facets, so to speak. And then why did you pick her? What attracted you to Frances? So um, that's, <laughs> that's actually... Um, that's actually a funny story in the sense that I owe that to my dissertation chair. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dissertation chair is um, Dr. Manisha Sinha, and she um, is a Draper chair in American studies um, at UConn stores in the history department. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point in my coursework years, um, at UMass Amherst, they did like a civil war conference or symposium. And she's like a rock star, superstar when it comes to 19th century African-American history. And so um, she basically gave a talk and she was talking about um, black abolitionists and also mentioned Frances Harper. And then she was like, oh, you know, like someone should really write a biography on Harper. You know, there's still so much stuff that's um, not being published. Uh, on her and she saw me in the audience and she pointed to me and she was like, Johanna, I think I was having a great project. And I was like, uh. <laughs> deer in headlights. I was like, oh God. Um, so, um, and then at the same time, I actually took her, um, her seminar on um, abolition. And in that seminar, um, she actually had us read uh, Melba Boyd's um, literary biography on Harper. 
So that was then basically like my first introduction into Harper and Boyd's book does like a really good job in terms of really giving you a lot of primary sources, really being able to hear like Harper's voice in terms of her uh, literary productions, um, some of her speeches. And I could also see how there was room to expand on a project by just doing more, you know, research in archives and really trying to unearth more stuff on her as a political activist and as a writer. And yeah, and then I just got really mesmerized with her. And I was like, okay. I was like, all right, let's roll with that. <laughs> That's basically how it came about. I just finished uh, Boyd's book. And it's so funny because like after I finished it, I was just like, oh my God, Frances Harper lived so long, did so much. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my God. And I'm like, how did I never, like, I just never heard about her, you know, until the past five years, I'd say. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because when you really think about it, it's like, as you said, like she lived um, well into her eighties, you know, which I'm like for that time period in itself, you know, it's like yeah. astonishing. And then she literally, I mean, for over half a century, was an activist, you know? Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, it's like, wow, like she's one of the um, most prolific like black women writers and black women activists of the 1800s. And, um, and again, you know, like um, most people just don't know about her or yeah. don't know the extent to how committed she really was to her political activism and also having that influence her, um, her writing as well. So, you know, um, I think that there's still so much that can be said about her, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, you made an interesting discovery. Yeah. <laughs> which is how I found you. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you tell us about Forest oh, Leaves. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that was, I would just say that was like a super lucky coincidence. So I don't mm. have like a super hoity-toity, like, academic, intellectually stimulating answer, like, oh, you know, I was in archives, you know, for months on end, you know, and finally sifted through the boxes and I found it. Um, it was just really, um, yeah, it was just really, I guess, like a lucky coincidence because I, once I knew that I wanted to focus on Harper for my dissertation, I was like, okay, so now I have to do archival research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a first generation college student. Um, so the whole, I mean, grad school in itself, already daunting enough, you know, mm -hmm. uh, pasta syndrome is real, all that kind of stuff. And so also for me, like, oh my God, archival research. I was like, how do you do that? Like, how do you go about it? Like, where should I start, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so in the very beginning, when I... Um, started looking into Harper, I knew that Forest Leaves was deemed lost to history because um, Boyd mentions that in her book on Harper, Frances Smith Foster mentions that in her Harper Reader um, that she uh, published, um, I think a few years prior to Melba Boyd's book. And so I was like, okay, in terms of my research, I was like, I'm just going to start in her hometown in Baltimore. So I went... Um, on the website, the, the Maryland Historical Society website. And I just like started really basic, you know, typing in her name, fine, some mm -hmm. stuff came up. And then I was like, forest leaves, you know, I was like, you know what, just for 
shits and giggles. Let me just pluck it in. Nothing's mm-hmm. gonna come up, but just so that I can like check it off my list and be like, okay, I did that. Fine. And so I'll put it in and then like a call number comes up and I'm like, huh. But <laughs> it was never to me, I never thought it was the actual pamphlet. I was like, okay, fine. Right. Like it's something, it's an advertisement. Maybe if I'm lucky, it's like the cover off the pamphlet, mm-hmm. whatever. And um, I have relatives in, in Maryland in Ellicott City. So next time I visited them, I was like, okay, let me just go to the, you know, society. Let me just like check it out just so that I have it. And so they brought out the envelope and I was like, I wasn't even nervous because I was like, there's no way. I was like, there's, right. there's no way. Like, whatever. So I'm just like, okay, the envelope. I'm like, okay, thank you. So I open it up and I see a pamphlet in there and I'm like, what the, was like, what the <laughs> heck? I was like, wait a second. And then I took it out and it literally, like everything, you know, slows down a little bit. You look at mm-hmm. it, then you are worried that what you're seeing is like an illusion. Like you're not, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? You're like, am I really looking at what I think I'm looking? So that took me like a little while. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I'm actually looking at, at forest leaves like at the pamphlet. So, um, yeah, so like it was just this really crazy, uh, lucky coincidence, you know? And so for me, it's like, okay, so what it also tells us about the archives, right, is on one hand, um, you can get lucky, you Mm -hmm. know, even if you don't know what you're doing, (laughs) you can get lucky. Totally, totally. So, yeah, so in Austria, we always, and we have to saying like, even a blind chicken finds a kernel of corn. So Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I'm a blind chicken, and that's my kernel of corn. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) perfect. Um, So you were just like, do you guys even know what you have here? Yeah, in my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't think that that people, like, know, you know? Um, And then also, like, it's really, um, it's really crucial because it just shows us that there is still so much in archives across the country that is either hidden in plain sight, literally as with forest Mm -hmm. leaves, um, or that there is still stuff that we can unearth, particularly when we like think about African-American history or African-American literature, you know, Mm -hmm. like we haven't scratched the bottom yet of what we can unearth and um and and find and rediscover you know so um i actually think it also speaks to that you know that like doing archival research obviously is really crucial but it's also really rewarding because we will continue to find um we will continue to find like really important um items you know that sort of like help us um look into african-american literature and african-american history a lot more it really reminded me of, um, gosh, I always forget her name, but I, I think it's Sarah Farrow, the black Victorian woman writer who wrote a book, I believe it's called True Romance. Mm-hmm. And um, that was actually recently sort of discovered much in the same way. It was kind of hidden in plain sight. Right. Like it had been a bestseller. It's just like we have overlooked this Look, history yeah. for so long. It's Yeah. yeah. It's like no, it's we really absolutely... need more people to be doing the, the work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it also speaks to, um, I mean, you know, the the usual thing too, like having the financial support from grants and fellowships to do the research and all that kind of stuff, you know, um, to, to really be able to, um, to do that. But 
yeah, it's also like really hopeful, you know, mm-hmm. like I was like, okay, at least in that avenue, I actually feel hopeful. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> at, at least that gives me hope, you know? Yes. What great material too for your dissertation, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was My like, God. okay, chapter one material check. <laughs> you know? Yes, like, exactly. Okay, yeah. It's nice too, to sort of like, I'm sure you've been combing over those, those pieces because they're, they're early pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So you can kind of see how her writing like evolved and all yeah. that good stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And just to have like a, just to have a, a point of reference that mm-hmm. predates um, her and her political activism too, because up until now, you know, like, okay, we had the pamphlet Poems and Miscellaneous Subjects that was published for the first time in 1854. And 1854 also marks the year where she joins the abolition movement. She becomes um, uh, an anti-slavery lecturer and an anti-slavery traveling lecturer. Um, so then having forced leaves um, predate that, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing just because it gives us um, Harper, a younger version of her, you know, a version pre, uh, pre-activism, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, as well. And I think that's just um, really, yeah, valuable in itself as well. Well, one of the questions that we always kind of try to explore on the show is like, what motivates the writer? And Mm -hmm. I feel like with Frances, like we would sort of obviously go to like the activism motivating her. Right. But maybe Forest Leaves tells us something a little different. Yeah. And I also think that um, for for Harper, so what um, what Forest Leaves tells me about her um, is also really connected to Harper's upbringing um, mm-hmm. as well, because um, Harper was um, born free, but she grew up in Baltimore and Maryland was a slave state. So, um, and then also thinking about the fact that she was orphaned by age three, and then she grew up with her aunt and uncle. And her uncle's name was William Watkins, and he was a really well-known reverend educator um, and also uh, anti-slavery activist in Baltimore. And he um, also had his own school. Uh, It was called the Watkins Academy um, for Negro Youth. And so, you know, you can only imagine his household, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of um, him really uh, valuing education, understanding how, how crucial literacy is. Um, and uh, Frances Smith Foster in her, um, in our Harper reader also mentions that in his academy, he focused a lot on rhetoric, um, biblical studies, elocution. So basically everything that you can see in like Harper's forest leaves, because, uh, most of the poems deal with, um, Christianity and religion and Harper attended the school up until, um, I think she was around 13 years of age. Um, so the fact that she was actually able to gain an education, you know, it's not like a matter of fact um, during that time period for uh, a young black girl. And um, and then I can only, you know, imagine that her uncle um, really, because of his own activism, you know, um, also talked about political issues in the household right. because he had multiple children 
And some of them became teachers. Some of them became also anti-slavery activists themselves as well. So there's also this whole like family history of being um, active um, and also um, being writers, you know, uh, maybe not necessarily for literature, but being an anti-slavery activist, writing letters, writing speeches, you know, um, things of that nature. So for me, Forest Leaves also just is a way for us to see how her early years, you know, influenced her and kind of like paved the path um, mm -hmm. for her to like really take um, the tools of literature, you know, and then write about it. And then obviously, you know, with her um, then becoming involved in the anti-slavery movement, we really see how she marries her political activism with her literary productions um, and, those two things are so interconnected when you read her, um, when you read her literary productions that you can't look at one by itself without also looking right. at the other. Um, and I think she also understood that, you know, literature in general is just a way for people to connect on a more intimate level. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and just, um, cause that's also what I feel like with my students, like when I give them pieces that Harper wrote um, and they read it, they get more into it than obviously if I would give them like a political speech that they, you know, find right. boring or whatever. Um, so um, I think also understanding the power of literature, you know, is something mm -hmm. that um, probably was important for Harper as well. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Are, yeah. Um, are you uh, giving them things like uh, the two offers or what are they reading? Yeah, exactly. So the two offers is like my go-to, <laughs> my go-to thing. Mm -hmm. First of all, because it's a short story. Um, second of all, that's like, you know, they read it actually from beginning to end, which, oh, okay, miracles right? happen, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. oh God, they actually do the reading. Um, so, um, so I'm like, okay, at least like I can get them to do that. Um, and my students really like the two offers, um, a lot in terms of just how Harper talks about womanhood and, you know, how she basically has like these two versions of womanhood, um, with, um, one of the protagonists being, um, the sort of more like traditional version of it, getting married, you know, having a child, da da da. And the other one being more like autobiographical in terms of being single, because at that point Harper wasn't married yet. Um, so being single, being a writer, and also being involved in the anti-slavery movement. And so my students really liked that short story, and they really also connected still to like gender roles today and how we mm -hmm. look at womanhood, um, which to me is like really cool because I'm like, okay, that, you know, first of all, it shows you that these pieces are quote unquote timeless in a way, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, um, it really gets my students to thinking, which I'm just, I'm always grateful for. Right, um, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's a win. Um, and then, um, yeah, I also have my students read, um, anti-slavery poems, um, that Harper wrote as well. Um, just again to, to see, um, her anti-slavery activism, but then how that plays out in, uh, in literary form. Um, and that my students actually, um, really get into, um, as well. 
So I'm like, okay, you know, that's, that's a good start, you know? Yeah, that I'm is like, a good okay. start. <laughs> Don't want to overwhelm him, you know what I mean? But a couple <laughs> of pages, you know, you're like, okay, <laughs> we're getting somewhere, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> now I'm trying to get like a sense of who Harper was as a person, which mm-hmm. it feels a little difficult um, because because we don't yeah. have a ton in the way of letters, correct? Like exactly, yeah, exactly. that's hard. Um, is there a letter or an anecdote or something you know, or a piece of her writing, just like something that makes you just even feel close to her, something that you particularly like? Sure, um, there definitely is, and again, it's not like a super intellectual um, uh, intellectual answer, but um, just like on a very personal note. Um, so because I was born and grew up in Austria, um, you know, when I was a kid, my, my dad, I don't want to say forced me to, but you know, hiking obviously is like a real thing, you know, and when you're like a young kid, like who wants to hike, you just want to just sit at home and watch TV, you know? So I was never really someone to like appreciate, uh, the great outdoors in Austria or anything like that. Um, so then, when um, I came to the U.S., though, I do have to say my uh, my love for my home country, um, particularly in recent years, you know, it's just like, oh, my gosh, exponentially, uh, uh, exponentially higher than it used to be. So mm-hmm. um, so now when I go home in the summer, uh, I go hiking and like mountain climbing and my brother and my my dad are both like, what happened? what happened to you? Who is this? What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what is this country doing to you? This is um, very weird to us. So, um, so also then um, with that, I like, you know, I just miss being home. I miss my home country. I miss everything about it. So when I actually looked at forest leaves for the first time, um, the first thing that I actually did was I was just like looking through the pages, um, just looking at the titles of the poems, because um, I knew the poems that were in her 1854 pamphlet, um, Poems and Miscellaneous Subjects. So I just basically was like flipping through forest leaves because I was like, let me see um, how many of these poems I actually don't know, which means, mm-hmm. you know, they are poems that we haven't heard of before or we didn't know about before. And so then I get to like page seven. And on page seven, a poem is titled Yearnings for Home. And I see the title. I'm like, oh, my God, Yearnings for Home. Like, yes, I yearn for Austria every single day. I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, And then um, because of the title of the poem, that was the first poem, actually, that I started reading in Forest Leaves. And um, if you look at, like, verse, um, I think, two to four, it literally is as if she's like talking about Austria because she's like talking about um, like murmuring brooks and rocks and alpine forests meeting, you know, the bright sky. And I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my gosh. I was like, oh my gosh. Like if I wouldn't know it any better, like she is describing what I see when I'm home in the summer and I'm mm-hmm. like a happy camper in the Alps. So, um, so for me, like just reading like that part of the poem and having, um, having it invoke like such an emotional connection, you know, for like me on a very personal level, like not living in my home country and being in the U S um, that to me 
was just really special and continues to be because whenever I read that poem, I'm just like, oh my gosh, yes, my home country, you know, even though um, yeah. I'm sure she was not thinking about Austria when she wrote it. Um, but um, yeah, it's just, it just speaks to you though. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's amazing. It feels like it yeah. was all meant to be. Yeah, exactly. So when I read that, I was like, oh my God. So uh, in terms of that, that's really, um, yeah, that's really something that's that's like special to me. But um, I also do agree with you in terms of it's just being very hard to find um, to find stuff on Harper that allows us to really get to know her more. Um, mm-hmm. Just because even though she was a writer, like we don't know, um, or at least we haven't found if it if it exists, uh, diary. You know, there there right. is none. Um, Cause at least I would think, you know, like with Ida B. Wells, for example, like she wrote, um, uh, a, 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 a kept a diary for a little while. Um, and so for Harper, we don't have that. We don't have personal papers. So literally when it comes to like doing research on her, um, my go-to, I realized were newspapers of the 1800s, um, anti-slavery newspapers, obviously in the beginning to really just sort of find, uh, letters and, and speeches of hers, um, Mm -hmm. and just expand on that, you know, and, and, and then using those primary sources to get a better sense of like who, who she was, um, what she was interested in and, um, those kind of things. But, um, yeah, it definitely takes, takes you on a little bit of a, a wild chase, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. I was like, man, I wish you would have kept the diary. Just one been diary. So just great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like, a, give like, me like that Alice Dunbar Nelson, you know, archive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just, just give me anything. Um, anything yeah. You know, but then on the other hand, um, I always get super excited when I like look at newspapers and obviously Francis Smith Foster um, collected a bunch of, of letters um, that Harper published or that were published in newspapers in her reader. Um, but, you know, if you do more archival research, like, I've, you know, I found more letters that are not um, in that reader, for example. So then you also get giddy because you're like, oh, my gosh, I found something new, you know. Right. And yeah. So that's exciting and rewarding as well. Um, yeah. And so I'm like, okay, it's, it's worth it. You know, the time that, yeah. that then, you know, you also have to put in, um, and also like traveling to get to different archives and all that kind of stuff. Now, um, I've been looking a lot this week at her speech, um, at the 11th national women's rights convention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk to me a little bit like about her involvement in the suffrage movement and just it's messy. It's so messy. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it definitely is. Um, so, uh, in terms of that, um, just to give like a little bit of context to, so basically, um, what happens to, um, to Harper is once she marries in 1860, um, she moves to, Ohio, which is something that she talks about in the in her speech, um, all bound up together um, at the National Women's Convention. And um, she basically buys a farm, you know, with her own money that she's made. Um, and then she kind of like drops off the radar a little bit. 
But if you look at um, newspaper accounts during the Civil War, you can still see that she's actually like politically active in Ohio. Not as much because now she's a mother and she's a stepmother. But, you know, she does like public speaking and she speaks at meetings and uh, and those kind of things. And then once her husband passes away by like... 1864 by the time the civil war is over 1865 she's back in the northeast um and you can find like advertisements and newspapers um where you know she is trying to get like speaking engagements again um and so by the time the the national women's rights convention comes along she's already back on the lecturing circuit for um a solid year like in a more Okay. intense way than she was during the civil um, during the civil war. And so if you look at her, um, if you look at um, the the titles of the, the speeches, the lectures that she's giving, um, she's really very much focused on um, now that the civil war is over. Like what now in terms of giving African-Americans equal citizenship rights? Um, and she talks about like the nation's great opportunity, you know, now that the Civil War is done um, and Reconstruction starts, like um, that there's really this opportunity to make sure that African-Americans are um, treated equally and finally receive um, civil rights. And so... Um, it's I, I think sometimes there is this understanding that Harper, you know, once the Civil War is over, is just focusing on women's rights, um, mm. which is not entirely true. She does. But she also, like in the second half of the 1860s, really very much focuses on the issue of um, black citizenship rights a lot. And um, in her lectures, then also talks about uh, women's rights as well. And so for me, I always give that speech um, um, as a speech that my students also have to read. <laughs> my students mm-hmm. are probably like, oh, my gosh, it's Harper every <laughs> second week. Uh, but I'm like, OK, <laughs> I like it. So um, so basically um, in the speech, um, you you can already see her politics when it comes to the suffrage movement. Right. Because right. she's very. Uh, very open and also thinking about the fact that, you know, um, at that convention in New York City in 1866, like she's talking to uh, an audience of, um, um, of, of, of black and white women, you know, Stanton is there, Anthony is there, you know, so mm-hmm. for me that she's up there and then she's basically like giving women voting rights, um, I think she said, uh, won't automatically cure the ills of society and really like calling out white women um Mm -hmm. in in terms of you know what we now um refer to as like white privilege and um and and their racism right Mm -hmm. to me is like uh every time i read it i'm like oh yes you know like okay yeah it's i read that speech and i was like how was this received because she's really like going for it yeah i can only imagine like the (laughs) the faces people like yeah you know um and so that's why i love it so much because i'm like she really uh doesn't give you know a bleep so to speak and no, just not like at all it's amazing goes for it yeah so i'm just like i love it and um also because even with that speech like when she talks about voting rights and women and she particularly calls out white women you know saying that giving um women you know white women um, also the right to vote doesn't automatically mean that, you know, the U.S. is going to go on this progressive curve. 
And then mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, oh, but look, look at us in 2016, you know, and just think about yeah. who white women voted for. Um, mm-hmm. And that's also something that my students always point out. So um, again, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, that speech was 1866 and yeah. it already shows you um, the the problematics, right, of like the suffrage movement at that point in time where, um, you know, the, the civil war is over, um, you have to 13th amendment officially abolished slavery and so now you have all these like former anti-slavery um white women activists who jump on the next thing and for them the next thing is voting rights and then particularly with um stanton and anthony um you know they get all up in their feelings because obviously they don't want uh, the 15th amendment to pass that gives um black men the right to vote they feel like it should be you know women should be next and obviously you have to read that as like white women you know and white middle class women should be next to get the right to vote um and that's also then when you know when we talk about like the messiness of the suffrage movement that's when it becomes evident too because then you have that split and you have like harper and other um black activists who are um basically um joining the um american um Suffrage Women Association that supports the uh, the 15th Amendment and um, that are all for it. And then you have, on the other hand, um, Stanton and uh, and Anthony, um, who are basically hell-bent on that not happening. And they are forming the National Women's Suffrage Association um, that um, is really just focusing on women's rights to vote and is very much against the 15th Amendment to, like, put it very plainly um Mm -hmm. and so you see the rift there um you also then see where harper obviously like draws her line her understanding you know that um, as a black woman you know she cannot divorce her racial background from her uh from her gender and for her it is important that the 15th amendment passes um because i think also because of her political activism she understands that okay, you have reconstruction, but I think that she was also very much aware of the fact that um, that that really wouldn't automatically make everything like all fine and dandy and that African-Americans continuously have to fight for black citizenship rights. Um, and one way in which you can at least try um, and have that become... Um, uh, a reality, let's put it that way, is if black men get the right to vote. And um, and even if you look at like um, uh, Rosalind Tilburg Penn's um, scholarship of um, black women and the suffrage movement, you can see how there's just the split there, you know, because yeah. you have certain suffrage um, uh, organizations um, headed by white women that don't even want black women as members, um, and all that kind of stuff. So it becomes like a really, a super messy, um, a super messy situation. And I think that like Harper's speech at the uh, National Women's Convention, uh, Women's Rights Convention in 1866 really shows you, you know, very straightforward and in, in, in a very, you know, um, straightforward language, um, what the issue, what the issue was, you know, yeah. and why there was just such a disconnect. And then, you know, we just have to think about um, the the movements 
for women's rights happening now and and um, how race still plays a big part and how white privilege and racism um, still plays a big part in it. And it's like, you know, almost um, looking at a some sort of like time warp, you know, in a way. Yeah. Well, I, I read it and I was like, same shit, different day. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Crazy. So it's absolutely, it's absolutely mind boggling to me. And so I was like, yeah, like that speech, I was like, I'll keep that in my curriculum <laughs> until <laughs> the end of time. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so good. It's, yeah, it's crazy to me. Like, I think um, I've been having a lot of conversations with my editor, my co-writer about this, like, um, when looking at movements like the suffrage movement or mm-hmm. civil rights, mm-hmm. uh, the way that it's like written about in like, you know, in in children's books or young adult books, I feel yeah. like gives yeah. this impre- like this very simplistic impression, right? Like right. then Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And exactly. Then was, yeah. Like it's just like, and then everything was fine. Right. I think we don't really talk about or grapple with like how long and how messy and how difficult this was and how it was like two steps forward, 10 steps back. Exactly. Exactly. And even like with Rosa Parks, you know, like that whole notion of, um, of um, not giving up her seat, right. And using um, public transportation to, um, to really take a stand against racism and segregation. Like Ida B. Wells did that in the 1800s. Um, Mm -hmm as well. Uh, Frances Harper um, did it too. So, the, you know, there's also like just, as you said too, like this connection. And particularly when you talk to students, like they are like, oh, wow, you know, they're like, that's crazy. I just, you know, yeah. they really just view it in, in a very like from one bubble to the next. And so yeah. that's why when I talk about the civil rights movement in my African American in history class, I always have to um, read the Theo Harris reading, um, The Radicalism of Rosa Parks. And then students are like, oh, my gosh, you're like, wow. And you're like in high school, you learn this one narrative and they're like mm-hmm. absolutely mind boggled that there's just more to it. Um, or the fact that like Rosa Parks, you know, she was active um, um, as a uh, as a civil rights activist but she was also um, active for uh, um, the NAACP in terms of um, sexual assault um, that black women um, experienced um, as well during the 1940s and 1950s, you know, which adds another layer. So my students then are always like, wow, like I can't believe it, you know, but it just shows you that there is just like this very like straightforward narrative of what we want history to be or what, yeah. you know, I, I would say white Americans want American history to, um, to be. And mm-hmm. um, it, they just wanted like nicely packaged, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a couple of sentences and wrap it up in a bow. And it's like, mm, there's a lot more, you know, that, right. That goes into it, you know, um, and that's the same thing with the suffrage movement and like, um, you know, passing the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Yeah. But then who actually, you know, was able to vote? Um, if we look at it realistically in terms of segregation, Jim Crow laws during that time period uh, and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, right. um, yeah. So I, I always like when I teach black women's political activism from the 1800s to present, I'm just always like I hope my students at least like take away 
the interconnectedness of Black women's activism across time and space, um, mm-hmm. and really just understand that there is a lot of complexity to it that they um, probably haven't learned up until that point, you know. So yeah. I'm just always like, okay, I hope that sticks, you know. And Harper is just the, um, for me, like just the shining example because she just has, um, you know, so much writing, um, mm-hmm. literary productions that talk about the those political um, topics, speeches, lectures, you know. So there's just like a lot um, that you can read to um, to really like get to know her or familiarize mm-hmm. yourself with her work as well. And we are back. And I think, yeah, I mean, thanks so much, Joanna, for coming on to the show and for giving us so much to think about and talk about. I think, yeah, again, we've got one of those authors who's writing about situations that haven't changed and we're still having yeah. these conversations hundreds of years long, uh, hundreds of years later, you know, just thinking about um, how we're still calling for intersectionality in yeah. uh, feminism whenever we come across like a subject like this it just reminds me like why it's so important that we talk about these authors and their work and their Mm -hmm. lives because it does help you think about you know like you can't have hindsight or context for stuff that's going on around you but when you can recognize it in stuff that happened 100 or 200 years ago then it helps you like process it and so Mm -hmm. um while I'm devastated that uh half a like has done all like has done all of that work and like did all of that activism and has like just never saw the fruits of that you know Mm -hmm. we still haven't seen the fruits of it and that's that's awful but then also like thank god (laughs) there are people like Frances Harper writing and working and speaking in the world Mm -hmm. and just like so shameful that we don't talk about her but um I think there is hope because this season we've talked to so many academics and um, a lot of sort of off mic conversations with those academics. They've asked us like, you know, who else are we talking about or who else are we covering on the show? And I've talked about Frances quite a bit and there's a lot of interest in her right now. So um, I do know of a lot of people who are doing their dissertations on Frances or are looking to put out books on her. So I do think that there's going to be a resurgence like sometime yeah. soon, hopefully in the next five years, which would be great. So maybe maybe now is the right time for us to talk about her, especially in terms of intersectionality. And um, maybe like we can process that like a little bit better yeah. in 2020, 2025. <laughs> Such a shame. I mean, this woman was born in 1825. Yeah. It's shocking. Well, I mean, you know, fingers crossed we can show some progress with that centenary. And if you're interested in reading Harper's work itself, there are a lot of collections that are available on Amazon. Um, But you can also start with the two offers, which is free. And like I said, it does have some Austin vibes and I will post their good vibes. (laughs) Um, I think it's like a seven page like story as well. So very quick read. I will post that on our socials. And Hannah, what what are those socials? Well, you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. And you can join our Facebook group. But remember, the important thing, if you try and join the Facebook group and you listen to the show, answer those questions. Yeah. Maybe we'll throw in a little old tradition. Let us know what you had for breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We think we got a bot the other day, so we're scared of the bots. Mm-hmm. It's because I, I challenged social media. I said the government was watching us. Now they've sent the I bots. Know. They've sent the bots after us. That's what it is. I'm not paranoid. The bots are coming. Tell me what you had for breakfast. <laughs> <sighs> Bye. Bye.